The scripture reading that's been selected to be read in our hearing this morning is found in Psalm 86. Psalm 86 will begin in verse 8. That can be found on page 577 of the Bibles placed in the rack in the pew in front of you. Psalm 86, beginning in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Nope. There we go. There we go. I first want to make sure the microphone is working. I first want to say thank you to everyone who came out yesterday and participated in our uh, work with the city of Sugar Hill. We, we had dozens of of members of this congregation involved with that, combined with several members of the community. And, and, and we were able to do a great thing for our community in the name of the Lord, and for that we should be thankful we had the opportunity. So, so we want to thank you for coming out and helping with that and contributing to that effort. It was a, it was a great day and a lot of a great work done for our community. With that being said, I heard the story about a young boy who was in Bible class one Sunday, and he was drawing a picture. And his teacher came up to him and asked, what are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, how can you draw a picture of God? Nobody knows what God looks like. And the boy, without missing a beat, said, well, they will after I'm done. (laughs) Now, we find great humor in that little boy's innocence. But shouldn't we also find something to admire in his confidence. Think about that for a moment. Shouldn't we all, those of us who are in pursuit of of God, those of us who are disciples, those of us who choose to follow the one true God, shouldn't all of us so know him that we can paint a metaphorical picture of him for anybody who asks? Let let me ask you this question. If someone came up to you right now and said, tell me about God, how would you respond? Let's, Let's frame it a little differently. If someone came up to you and said, tell me about your spouse, would you be able to do that? I would. If you asked me to tell you about Sarah, I would be able to tell you about her, and I'm going to tread carefully here. I would be able to tell you beyond her biographical information. I would be able to tell you about her personality. I would be able to tell you about her history. I would be able to tell you what she likes, what she doesn't like, the things that bring her joy. And I've got a PhD in the things that make her mad. (laughs) I would be able to tell you about her beyond what the DMV could. Can you do that for the Lord? You see, it is our responsibility... It is our responsibility to know 
God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord god himself says if you're going to boast in anything boast in the fact that you know me now can you boast in that let me show you another verse let me show you something jesus said it comes from john chapter 17 and verse 3 this is in the midst of of his last recorded prayer before his death. John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus speaking says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. He goes on to define eternal life in terms of knowing God. Do you know him? There's also a passage that appears in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where Paul said, those who do not know God, as well as those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So while Jesus is saying eternal life is contingent on knowing God, Paul is saying that the absence of such knowledge will lead to eternal destruction. And then we can go throughout Paul's epistles. And Paul made it known that discipleship is intimately connected with knowledge. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, he defined a worthy walk as one that is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, he indicated that God's mission for his disciples is to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, we've just run through all these verses with one basic objective. To make the point that our knowledge of God matters. And during this year in which we are emphasizing the theme of one, I believe that if every member of this congregation makes knowing God their single objective, then we will have accomplished more than we could have ever imagined by the end of the year. Because when you know God, when you truly, intimately know God, it changes you. But how can we know God? One of, if not the primary way that God has made himself known to us is through his names. This is evident back in Exodus chapter 33. If you'll turn there, we, we have this interaction between Moses and God, and it's very interesting because Moses is going to make some requests of God and how God responds with the way in which he will fulfill those requests is fascinating. So in Exodus chapter 33, Moses in verse 12 and 13, said this, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, here's Moses' first request. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord responds, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, God is actually responding in that moment to the statement that Moses had made a little bit earlier about the fact that he, he uh, let me know whom you will send with me. And God's saying, I'm going with you. That's all you need to know. Moses comes back and in verse 18 says, please show me your glory. So Moses has made two requests of God, and at this point, God has not answered them yet. Moses has asked God, show me your ways so that I'll know you, and show me your glory. Now look at verse 19 and 20, because God explains how he's going to fulfill both of Moses' requests. He starts and ends what he says with an explanation of how he will show his glory. And sandwiched between those statements, he's going to explain how he'll show him his ways. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What God does here is he says, all right, I will show you my glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my face and live. And I will show you my ways so that you will know me. And I will do that by proclaiming my name. That's how he intended to show Moses his ways. In other words, when Moses indicated his desire to know God better, God responded with his name. You see, names matter. Names are more than just a collection of consonants and vowels that are squished together to serve a, as a verbal symbol for a person or a thing. I mean, think about it. How many little boys do you know that are named Judas? And how many little girls do you know that are named Jezebel? There's a reason. Because names matter. Names can communicate value. Names can communicate hope. Names can communicate sentiment. Think about when you named children. For those of you who have children, think about how you chose names. For some of us, we chose names because we value our family. And so a family name gets passed down in some way, shape, or form. For some of us, we value creativity. And so we come up with the most unique name in our opinion. Many of you know that Sarah and I have named our children Micah and Leah. Both names come from the Bible, and when we were setting out the task of naming Micah, our firstborn, the one request I made of Sarah is that we choose a biblical name, and I had no idea why I wanted that. It is completely cliche for a preacher to want biblical names. I understand that, but I could not at that time 
communicate verbally to you why it was so important to me to have a name from the Bible. But over the years, it's set in with me why. It's because there's nothing I value as a source of information more than God's Word. And I wanted to project that onto my children. I'm not trying to demean anybody who chooses not to name their kids based on the Bible. That's totally me. So don't, don't think, oh, now I have to do that, or Kyle looks down on me. No! For me, naming my children based on biblical names was how I demonstrate the value of God's Word in my life. Just as how you choose to name your kid based on something within your family, something within your heritage, something within your personality and your creativity. Our, the names we assign to our children often communicate something we value. And it's no different in Scripture. Names matter. And in Bible times, this was even more true. Names were associated in biblical times with an entity's attributes, personality, character, or purpose. One author pointed out that in antiquity, a person's name was frequently seen as the equivalent of them. Your name equaled who you are. And so, for example, in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 25, we read about the birth of Esau, and we're told that he came out red, and all his body was like a hairy cloak. So Esau's name was associated with his physical attributes. And immediately after Esau's birth, we read about the birth of his twin, Jacob, who came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name literally means he grasps the heel. But it metaphorically means one who deceives. And it indicates that his name was associated with his personality. And a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night study of the life of David, we discussed his encounter with a guy named Nabal. Nabal notoriously wronged David by not compensating him and his men for the services they rendered to him. And David was prepared to kill Nabal for that slight. But Nabal's wife intervened and said to David in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 25, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal's name literally means fool. And his wife is saying, that's what he is. Whether or not that's the name his mother gave him is a different story. We don't know. But that's the name he's known by and it's associated with his character. And when Joseph was divinely informed of Mary's pregnancy, he was instructed to name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. So Jesus' name was associated with his purpose. You see, a name communicates something about the one named as well as the one doing the naming. But what's interesting about God is that he has multiple names. Now, you may be thinking, that, that's not true. He's got one name. He gave it to Moses at the burning bush. It, it, it's that name, I am, or Yahweh. And you're not completely off base in claiming that. Because for all intents and purposes, Yahweh is the, the, the personal name of God that he did give to Moses at that moment when Moses specifically asked for his name. 
And that's the name that will appear throughout the Bible more than 6,000 times. But as you journey through the pages of Scripture, you'll learn that God has multiple names with which he is associated. You'll come across occasions when God gives himself another name, such as the case when he appeared to Abram and said in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Or when he made bitter water sweet for the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26 and said, I am Jehovah Rapha, which means I am the Lord, your healer. Or when he gave Moses the Sabbath instructions in Exodus chapter 31 and he said, I am Jehovah Mekodishkim, which means I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Then you'll come across other occasions when people give God another name. Such was the case when Hagar, upon being found by God in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13, called him Elroi, which means the God who sees. And such was the case when Abraham, after God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 33, called him Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who provides. And such was the case with Moses. When after the leading the Israelites to victory against the Amalekites by holding his hands in the air, called him Jehovah Nisi in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15, which means the Lord is my banner. So at different times in biblical history, using different entities, events, or experiences, God would reveal a new name in order to communicate different perspectives of his identity. And each time he did this, it was as if he was saying, you didn't know this about me yet, but now you do. I like the way one author explained the multiplicity of names associated with God in the Bible. He said, because of the depth of God's character, he has various names that reflect the many ways he relates to humanity. One name by itself can't fully represent God's majesty and power. One name alone can't fully tell us all we need to know about this person we refer to as God. So throughout the Bible, when we are given new names for God, it's not because he's changing. It's actually because we are. In other words, God reveals many of his names to us so we can understand that he has a name to meet the needs of any situation that we face in life. And so there are some of us here today that feel powerless and weak. Some of us who are experiencing problems bigger than we can handle. And we need to know that God is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And there are some of us here today that feel insignificant, feel as though nobody cares about us. And we need to know that God is El Roy, the God who sees. Others of us are here feeling anxious. We're worried about the bills. We're worried about our family. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about our health. And we need to know that God is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Still others of us are feeling lonely. And we need to know that God is Jehovah Shema, which means the Lord is there. Others of us are feeling destitute, and we need to know that God is Jehovah Jireh, the the Lord who provides. And there are some of us who are sick. 
And we need to know that God is Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord, your healer. And there are others of us who are feeling dirty because sin has a hold on us. And we need to know that God is Jehovah Shiskadim. Oh, no, Jehovah Siddikinu. I'm working on my Hebrew, okay? That means the Lord, our righteousness. And so the big question for us today is what are we supposed to do with these names? In other words, what is our responsibility to the names of God? I think that is best answered in the model prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, he began by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Other than when you're quoting this passage, I don't know how often you use the term hallowed. Maybe when you're dealing with Harry Potter, but beyond that, I don't think it gets used. The term hallowed is an archaic term. It's an English word used to translate a Greek term that means to make holy. It comes from the same Greek word used for such terms as saint, sanctify, and sanctification. It means that to hallow God's name is to hold it in reverence. To honor it as sacred. But how do we do that? Three quick thoughts. Hallowing God's name means not misusing it. If you turn over to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and you look at verse 7, we're told, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I know many of you hear that and go, wait, that's not the way I was taught. It's take the Lord's name in vain. But define that for me. Define what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It means to misuse it. In specific context, this command is a prohibition against invoking his name as a guarantor of your words and then failing to uphold your word. In other words, it's claiming that you're telling the truth and then committing perjury but in claiming to tell the truth you're saying by god i'm telling the truth and you're lying that's misusing the name of the lord but that's not all it is that's the specific context there's a more general context and the israelites adopted that more general context because they quit they quit enunciating the name of the lord They quit speaking the name of the Lord out of concern that they might not use it appropriately, that they might employ it in a context that is inappropriate. And so when we say that God's name is Yahweh, that's actually our best guess at how to pronounce pronounce those four consonants that make up his name because the Israelites and the Hebrews quit pronouncing it. They had such respect for the name of the Lord that they dare not even do anything that might misuse it. Now let me ask you, do you revere God's name the same way? Do you hold God's name in such esteem that you never employ it in the wrong way? Have you ever used God's name or God's titles as an exclamation of dismay? An exclamation 
of surprise, an exclamation of grief? Is that the appropriate context for using God's name? Have you ever shouted God's name in anger? Employed it as a curse against somebody? Have you ever utilized it in a form of humor? Have you ever misused the Lord's name? Because the third command in the Ten Commandments is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. And hallowing God's name means not misusing it. But hallowing God's name means also finding comfort in it. In Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7, David declared, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David spoke of God's name as something on which he depended, something in which he placed his confidence, something in which he found comfort. And David's not the only one to make a statement like this. His son Solomon would echo his sentiment in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10 where he wisely wrote these words, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The idea being communicated by David and Solomon is that you can find safety, security, comfort in the name of the Lord. When life is throwing curveballs at you, when life is difficult, when things are really challenging your faith. These names are where you're to run. Understanding and knowing who God is via his names will be the source of comfort that you need in those trying times. But there's one more thing you need to know about hallowing God's name. It means calling on it. And for those of you under the age of 30, that red thing dangling there, that's a telephone. That's what it used to look like before it was in your pocket. Calling on the name of the Lord is how Abraham, the father of faith, is described as having expressed his faith in God. For example, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8, when Abram finally arrived in the land of Canaan, he settled near, near the town of Bethel, and we're told that there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He repeated that process in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 4 when he returned from his sojourn in Egypt and in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 33 after the birth of Isaac. And this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, becomes a summary statement of what one has to do in order to receive salvation. It first appears in Joel chapter 2 in the context of a prophecy about the church. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that's a reference to the events that take place in the first few verses of Acts chapter 2. And Peter will actually quote this prophecy in that very chapter during his Pentecost sermon. And the last verse of that quotation is significant because Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what we learn is that you cannot be saved unless you call on the name of the Lord. Which is why Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that one must confess with his or her mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his or her heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. And if you pay attention to Romans chapter 10, 
after Paul says those words, you just take a couple of verses down to verse 13, and guess what? He's quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallowing God's name means recognizing that unless we're willing to confess that name, salvation will elude us. And so this morning, we are launching into a new series. A new series of lessons that's going to take several weeks, take us through the summer for the most part, and we're going to be studying the names of God. I'm calling this series Name Dropping. Now, in our culture, name dropping is not a favorable thing to do. In our culture, the phrase name dropping refers to casually mentioning the names of famous or important people in order to impress others. And it's generally viewed as an annoying habit. So don't do it. But in the context of this series, name dropping is referring to God's purposeful effort to reveal himself to us incrementally. Like a painter creating a work of art that cannot be fully comprehended in its individual brushstrokes. But when you put all those strokes together, you then discover the masterpiece that it is. This morning we launch into a study of the names of God because it's our responsibility to know God and God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his names. You've heard some of those names dropped already. They will be further explored in the weeks to come and it's my prayer that you'll choose to be a part of that study so that you can know your God better. But my greatest prayer is that everyone here today, in person or online, will choose to call upon that name and find salvation through it by repenting of their sins, by confessing that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you need to call on his name today, we invite you to come while together we